Hey everybody, welcome to Talking Scripture, a podcast where we illustrate relevance and application of the scriptures in Come Follow Me. We also dive into the history and cultures of the text. Thanks for taking the time to share and subscribe to this podcast. For show notes, head over to our website, TalkingScripture.org. Welcome to Talking Scripture. I'm Mike. And I'm Bryce. And today we're going to be in section 84 of the Doctrine and Covenants. It's a big section. Just to give you a little bit of background, the last section they were in Missouri, and Joseph's going to travel back up to Ohio, but they're going to be waylaid because on the way back, Bishop Newell K. Whitney breaks his leg. Uh, there's a coach accident, and so they end up staying uh, sometime in Greenville, Indiana, um, until the bishop could travel. And so after staying at this inn for a month, uh, Joseph is actually poisoned one night, uh, but through a priest of blessing recovers. And over time, Bishop Whitney's ready to go and, and to come back to Ohio. And so they arrive in Kirtland in late June of 1832. And so to give you an idea of how long they were gone, uh, Joseph was gone from his family for about three months at this time. And so this revelation is going to come in the fall, in September of 1832. And in March of 1832, Joseph and Sidney are brutally assaulted and mobbed. And horrible things happen. And during the course of this, Sidney Rigdon has major head injuries that he suffers. And as a result of this, Sydney in July of 1832 starts to express things that are lacking hope. He even says to individuals that uh, there's no need to pray. We might as well just give up. He kind of has this depressed mood. And so Joseph has to work through that with him and relieves him of his license to preach. But then over the course of time, uh, Sydney is reinstated. But at this time, as a, as a result of some of this stuff, Joseph's going to do the Joseph Smith translation with Frederick G. Williams instead of Sidney Rigdon. And this is the beginning of, of a rift that's going to happen between Sidney and Joseph. And I'm trying to give uh, Sidney the benefit of the doubt. Having suffered a head injury myself, I know that it does a lot of things to you. And... Um, my personality and some of the things that I kind of went through, it's a difficult thing. So I'm going to just say, I'm not going to judge Sydney. I'm going to look at this in, in the whole picture and just say, I get it. I, I can see these things happening. But Joseph has to move forward with the things the Lord has given him. So with that as a brief background to the summer of 1832, we're going to talk about a lot of things in this section but Bryce, we can't cover everything in this, can we? There's no way. Section 84 is so big, it could be a come follow me for several weeks. It's very rich and it's very deep. And because of that, sometimes we miss the gem at the heart of this. So we're going to go right to that gem, what I believe is the gem at the heart of section 84. So let me give you a brief summary. The Lord starts by reminding them, we are going to build this city. We are going to build the New Jerusalem, and it's going to start with this amazing temple. And speaking of that temple, the sons of Moses and the sons of Aaron are going to offer an offering in that temple that's very important. And then the Lord says, pause, and he interjects this incredible gem about how did Moses and Aaron get the priesthood and what is the purpose of priesthood. Then he unpauses and he comes back to the sons of Moses and of Aaron. He does the oath and covenant of the priesthood. And then, because we're going to build this temple and we're going to offer this offering in the temple, 
boy, we've got to do a lot of missionary work because right now the world is groaning under sin, and so we need to go out and preach the gospel. And then we've got this humongous section on the blessings and the need to preach the gospel. So that's kind of the overall picture of section 84. And within that, there are so many little things that we could spend some time talking about, but I want to go right to that little golden nugget of priesthood that is the interjection. It's really the added-in piece rather than the flow of the conversation. And so let's jump to that. And let me tell you why I think we need to go to this gem. President Russell M. Nelson becomes the prophet officially at the Solemn Assembly in April of 2018. That was the very first general conference with Russell M. Nelson at the head. His first major address, besides kind of standing up and making a few remarks about some changes in the church. His first major address is in the priesthood session of that conference. He starts by thanking Thomas S. Monson and all that President Monson did and his love for President Monson. And then he says, now may I voice a concern. This is the first thing out of his mouth when the mantle falls and wraps around him. May I voice a concern? And he says, it is this. Too many of our brothers and sisters do not fully understand the concept of priesthood power and authority. He goes on to say, I fear that too many of our brothers and sisters do not grasp the privileges that could be theirs. So we do not understand priesthood and we do not claim our privileges in the priesthood, both males and females. So because of that, let's jump into what is the priesthood and how do we tap into its power? Section 84, verse 6, he says, and the sons of Moses, according to the holy priesthood, and that's where he pushes the pause. Now, after his conversation in verse 31, he says, as I said concerning the sons of Moses. So let's pick it up. So everything between verses 6 and verse 31 is this side comment about priesthood. Bryce, when I'm teaching, I actually have students put parentheses in there. Yeah. He brings up the topic of the holy priesthood when he mentions sons of Moses, and then he comes back to sons of Moses. So let's focus on the holy priesthood. Now, first what he does in 6 through 14, 15-ish, is he tracks the lineage of the priesthood from Moses all the way back to Adam. So the priesthood has existed on earth from Adam all the way down to Moses. Verse 17, the priesthood continueth in the church in all generations is without beginning of days or end of years. And verse 18, there's another priesthood which the Lord conferred upon Aaron, which is the lesser priesthood. Now, verse 19, here we go. The Lord is going to tell us what the priesthood is, what the priesthood does, and how to tap into that power. He says in verse 19, this greater priesthood, and then in my scriptures, I've put a colon there. This greater priesthood, colon, and then two things. Number one, it administers the gospel. The priesthood is the vehicle through which we receive the gospel. And then two, the priesthood holds the keys of. Now, let's make a big, long list. So the first word on the list is mysteries of the kingdom. The priesthood unlocks the mysteries of the kingdom. The next one in verse 19, the priesthood unlocks the knowledge of God. 
In verse 20, the priesthood, through the ordinances, unlock the power of godliness. Verse 22, the priesthood unlocks the face of God. And he repeats that in verse 23. Moses sought to get them to enter in that they might behold the face of God. And then the end of verse 24, the priesthood unlocks the rest of God. That there is a spiritual rest as we go through this mortal existence. There is a rest that comes through the priesthood. It doesn't mean life suddenly becomes easy. It means in our souls, there is a rest. Probably the very best way I can describe that rest is going to Alma chapter 32, that tree that we grow that bears fruit. If you grow that tree, and if that tree grows within you, notice in verse 40 of Alma 32 that it's the tree of life. If you grow the tree of life within you, Here's the description, verse 42. Because of your diligence and your faith and your patience with the word in nourishing it, that it may take root in you. Behold, by and by ye shall pluck the fruit thereof. Now watch what the fruit of the tree of life inside of us does, which is most precious, which is sweet above all that is sweet, and which is white above all that is white, and pure of all, all that is pure. And ye shall feast upon this fruit even until you are filled, that ye hunger not, neither shall ye thirst. It's the same thing Jesus was trying to say to the woman at the well. If you drink of my water, it shall become a well in you of living water, and you won't thirst again. There's so many references to this idea of God's rest, that we can go through hard times and rest in God. I find it fascinating in Alma chapter 50, right in the middle of the war chapters, when the threat of a Lamanite attack is very real because Amalekiah is at the helm. But because of Captain Moroni, because of the gospel, because of covenants, that was a happier time than any other time among the Nephites. You can be happy in the midst of a war and the threat of destruction. It is the joy that saints get to know. President Nelson, before he became a prophet, gave a tremendous talk on joy, and that we can feel this joy even in challenging times. It is the rest of God, and the priesthood is the key that unlocks the rest of God. And there's one more. If you go back to section 84 in verse 24 again, it unlocks the glory of God. So how do I claim my blessings of the priesthood and unlock the mysteries of the kingdom, the knowledge of God, the power of God, the face of God, the rest of God, and the glory of God? Well, one of the keys is in verse 20. In the ordinances thereof, the power of godliness is manifest. In other words, one of the ways we turn the key and open the door, we claim our privileges, is in the ordinances of the priesthood. Ordinances like baptism and sacrament that we do frequently, but I'm going to focus all of our attentions on the ordinances of the temple. 
priesthood and its ordinances turns that key and we claim our blessings. So let's talk a little bit about ordinances. What is an ordinance? May I suggest that an ordinance is a covenant with a token. So there's a promise I make in my heart that brings blessings, and then I do something outwardly. I I perform a token, a ritualistic token, that teaches me about the covenant or illustrates the promises. So there's a covenant and a token. And if you want to claim your blessings, look at the token and understand the covenant that you're making, and if you live that covenant, you receive those blessings. So let's do baptism and sacrament together, because it's the same covenant with a different token. Both of them are the same promise, and we receive the same blessings, but we just change the token. It wouldn't be practical to fill the font and baptize everyone every single Sunday, so we just change the token but we renew the same covenant. We make the same promises. So we can look at the tokens and understand the promise I'm supposed to make. So the ritualistic token that I perform when I get baptized is I bury myself in the water, which points not to a cleansing, but a death. I bury something and I come up without it. Now, Jesus, as an example, buried his mortal body and came up with an immortal body. As I take the sacrament and as I get baptized, I am promising that something in me needs to die and be buried. And maybe this week when I partake of the sacrament, it's what I'm struggling with this week. Maybe the bad habit I have right now is the one I need to promise to kill and bury. Whatever aspect of the natural man is manifesting itself in my life, I need to bury it. And as I work this week on killing and burying that bad habit, the promise is that the Lord allows me to come up with a newness of life. And that's the cleansing. And then there's also the birth, right? Because yep. as a child is born. So it's, it's a lot of things. So you see the token is teaching a great deal about the covenant and the promises. So we get to practice with baptism and sacrament. I love that the token of the sacrament is the breaking of the bread, that while we perform the sacrament, we watch the bread broken as if the Lord is saying, do you remember that bad habit, Rise? You know that bad habit? Break it this week. Promise me that you will break that bad habit. And that then becomes my sacrament covenant. And if I do that, then his broken body will claim me and redeem me. Or Jesus hands me a cup and says, drink this cup. Now, when Jesus drank a cup, it killed him. When I drink a cup, I'm supposed to kill part of me. And it's supposed to cleanse me. So again, the token teaches about the covenant. So go with me into sacred places. Now, I'm going to stick to scriptural teachings, but those with eyes to see will see. We are to be washed and anointed. Now, if you think about all the things that I wash and all the things that I anoint, 
when I participate in the ordinance in the temple, the token is to be washed and anointed. So what does that suggest I'm promising? If I'm going to wash my eyes as a token, what am I promising to the Lord? Aren't I promising that I will wash sin out of my eyes? I will wash what I look at, and I won't look at those things. If I'm going to wash my mind, my brain, what am I promising? What's the covenant I'm making? I'm going to wash those bad thoughts out of my head. I'm going to wash what my hand touches. I'm going to wash what my mouth speaks. I'm going to wash the things I hold up on my shoulders. I'm going to wash sin out of me. And the Lord's promise is that if we wash those things out, then we are clean and we are filled with the Holy Ghost and we are filled with his presence and we are protected. Do you see the covenant, the token in that ordinance? Let's talk a little bit about anointing. If in the ordinances of the priesthood, we get to participate in the power of godliness, if that's how we turn and unlock the key, then what does it mean to anoint myself? Now, we're very comfortable with that in the church. You anoint someone to receive a blessing. It's almost as if you put a mark on them to receive a blessing. Now, that should open up all sorts of scriptural images where you put a mark on yourself to receive a blessing. Now, that oil is coming from the olive tree, and the tree in antiquity was a symbol of Heavenly Father's wife. And so in the blessing with the oil and the priesthood, it's almost like you have mom and dad on the other side of the veil saying, we know where you are, we love you, we're here. Yeah, I love it. And in the scriptures... There's a counterfeit mark. Remember the book of Revelation has a counterfeit mark? I mark myself with the beast's image. Are you putting a mark on yourself that is a mark of God and wanting God's blessing? Or the counterfeit is, are you putting the world's mark upon you so that you can be blessed by the world? Notice in Revelation 13, when the mark of the beast is put on their forehead, the only way you could buy and sell in the world's playground is if you have the world's mark upon you. Do you anoint yourself for the world's blessing or do you anoint yourself for God's blessing? Do you see how the ordinance has a token that allows us to think, this is what I'm promising? As you turn that key, you unlock the mysteries of the kingdom, the knowledge of God, the power of God, the face of God. If you think about the culmination in holy places, you enter into the rest of God. You are embraced by God himself, which means in this life, you can wrap his arms around you. I love how the Book of Mormon calls it the arms of safety. You can be wrapped in the arms of peace and joy and safety. And the way we unlock those blessings is through the ordinances of the temple. So ponder those ordinances. What does the token suggest you're promising? 
And then how do you mark a blessing upon my forehead? Do you remember what the Book of Mormon taught about? Have you received his image in your countenance? Are you anointing your eyes to receive a blessing from God? Because I want the Lord's blessing, not the world's blessing. I bear you my witness that the ordinances of the priesthood unlock power. If you want fruit to feast upon in difficult days, unlock that fruit through the ordinances of the priesthood, through baptism, through the sacrament, and specifically through the temple. They are now opening back up. Go back into those temples and watch how your knowledge of the mysteries of the kingdom expands as you pay particular attention to the ordinances of the priesthood, washing and anointing, sealings, and think about how the token teaches us what we're promising to do. This is tremendous. Now, the sad thing, look at verse 23 of section 84. Moses wanted so desperately to invite his people Moses sought diligently to sanctify his people that they might behold the face of God, come into the temple, perform these ordinances, see him, feel him, know him. But verse 24, they hardened their hearts and couldn't endure his presence. Let's not be that people. Let's not be the ones that don't live the covenants we're making in these ordinances. It's interesting historically. There's this massive apostasy that happens where the followers of Moses would take these ideas about beholding the face of God and change them to where we read texts in Deuteronomy where it's purported that Moses said things like, well, you can't behold the face of God because he doesn't have a face. Uh, The temple is not the place where God will be, but it's the place where his name shall dwell. Language matters. And if we change the meaning of what the words mean, we change the culture. And in this instance, they change the religion. And so verse 24 is very important. It talks about how they hardened their hearts and they could not endure his presence. And so they missed out. Yeah. And there is nothing in this that requires you to hold an office in the priesthood. You don't necessarily claim the blessings of the priesthood by holding an office. And what the Lord is making clear is in verse 20, you claim the blessings of the priesthood by participating in the ordinances. But don't just go through the ritual, find the covenant in the token, male and female, office holder or non-office holder, find the covenant in the token, live that covenant and receive those blessings. One of the cool things I noticed is when you go to the temple for somebody who's passed away, and if you do all their ordinances, just think about how many times their name comes up. God knows who you are. Yeah, and he says that all throughout section 84, he talks about not a hair of your head isn't numbered, that God knows you. And I just love the tie. You know, he's going to say this regarding missionary work, but it's coming from the same section. So he says in 88, whoso receiveth you, there will I be also. For I will go before your face. I will be on your right hand and on your left. My spirit shall be in your heart. Mine angels round about you to bear you up. Starting in 64, he says, here are the blessings of those that believe. Here is the blessings of entering into his rest. Wonderful works in 66. Cast out devils. Heal the sick. And 68 is more than physical ailment. 
Sometimes it's just the heartbreak inside our heart. He will heal the sick. He will open the eyes of the blind, both physically blind and non-physically blind. He'll unstop the ears of the deaf. So all of these wonderful things that can be tied to the rest of God, the glory of God, getting God into your life, I think we've got to go back to these early verses and say, turn the key. The priesthood is the key. We've got to claim our blessings in the priesthood. Just an interesting note along these lines, and I think this is what separates Latter-day Saints a little bit from our Christian friends, is that everyone is being brought into this, a kingdom of kings and queens and priests and priestesses, that the priesthood and the blessings of the priesthood and priests of power are for everyone. It's this idea that it encapsulates the human family. And Joseph Smith even talked about that, that the priesthood is to bless the whole world. Now, in this section, there's this promise where the Lord says, if you receive this, I have this promise, this oath and covenant. Why don't you talk a little bit about that? So we often talk about covenants and oaths as covenants and oaths we make. Like when I'm baptized, I promise God this. But if you read carefully the oath and covenant of the priesthood, it is an oath and covenant that God makes. God is swearing an oath, and he will keep the oath. This is the oath and covenant that God makes to those who receive the priesthood. And I love that it doesn't really say you have to hold an office in the priesthood. Receiving the priesthood is not limited to obtaining an office in the priesthood. It's those who obtain the blessings. So it's, it starts in verse 33 of section 84. There's an if part and a then part. The if part is if we do something, then God swears an oath and makes a covenant that he will do this for us. So verse 33, whoso is faithful unto the obtaining these two priesthoods. And I know the natural tendency is to assume that means obtaining an office in the priesthood, which would limit this to males who hold offices. And do not think that way. Don't limit it to holding an office, because the Lord doesn't necessarily limit it to office holders. And again, President Nelson saying, we're not claiming our blessing. So see yourself here. Whosoever is faithful unto the obtaining of these two priesthoods, and I would suggest that means the ordinances. If you receive the ordinances of those two priesthoods, which would be sacrament, baptism, temple, sealings, washings, anointings, if you receive the ordinances of the tomb priesthoods, and magnify their calling. And again, I think that's pointing to keeping the covenant that you receive through the ordinance. If you magnify your calling, you are called to covenant with God. If you do that, then God swears an oath. First of all, he says, you will be sanctified by the Spirit, even unto the renewing of your bodies. You will become the sons of Moses and of Aaron and the seed of Abraham and the church and kingdom and the elect of God. Again, see, that's, that we're all there. We all fit somewhere there. If you will do this, you'll become the sons of Moses, the sons of Aaron, the seed of Abraham, the church and kingdom of God. And then he says, if you receive the priesthood, you receive me. 
If you receive me, you receive my Father. If you receive my Father, you receive all my Father's kingdom. Therefore, all that my Father hath shall be given unto you. The glory that God has, the joy that God has, the power that God has, the life that God has, all that he has, he gives us. Verse 39, this is according to the oath and covenant which belongeth to the priesthood. And all those who receive the priesthood receive this oath and covenant of my Father. And I think we could replace the word of with from. If you receive the priesthood, you receive this oath and covenant from God, and he won't break it. But the last two verses go on to say, if you take lightly, if you don't care about the ordinances of the priesthood, then you do not receive what God is wanting to give you. You will miss out on what God has for you. If you take those verses and then you go down to verse 44, for you shall live by every word that proceedeth forth from the mouth of God. There's a lot of people that have access to the Bible, but they don't maybe know about the priesthood, or maybe they don't know about the restoration. Look in verse 45, for the word of the Lord is truth, and whatsoever is truth is light, and whatsoever is light is spirit, even the spirit of Jesus Christ. And the spirit giveth light to every man that cometh into the world, and the spirit enlighteneth every man through the world, that hearkeneth to the voice of the Spirit. Emphasis on every. Everyone. And so I see this merciful idea of degrees. If you look at the end of verse 48, this restoration, this priesthood, the messages, you know, by degrees, whatever degree of light someone has, it's for the sake of the whole world. So there's this teeny little band of Christians that the Lord is speaking to in section 84. And at the end of verse 48, the Lord says, this isn't just for your sakes only, but for the sake of the whole world. And any way that we can spread light, whether it's through just simple Bible reading or whatever level that we're at spiritually, wherever anyone is, it's light. And it, it's to fight verse 49, the darkness that's everywhere. And so there's a great voice of mercy and degrees of light. I really like that. That everyone has access to priesthood in, in a different form or another. And as you access that light and truth and priesthood, you receive blessings and you grow, and then he's going to open up more opportunities. And so everyone in the whole world can grow through the power of the priesthood. Yeah. Okay. So in these verses that we've just read, we've talked about Moses and Mount Zion. Mount Zion in verse 32, the Mount Zion is going to be the Temple Mount in antiquity. That's where Jerusalem was. That's where the temple was. But Mount Zion, from a typological perspective, is also anywhere where the saints dwell, specifically where they build a house. And so that could apply to the promise that the Lord gives, where he says, this generation, you are going to build this house. Um, That was the command that he gave them to build the house. Now, some fun stuff going on in verse 19, talking about how the priesthood holds the keys of the mysteries of God. That word mystery is related or comes from the word mustes, which just means the initiated one. But it can also be related to muo, which is I close or I shut specifically the mouth or even sometimes the eyes. So in the Greek context, 
when the people are writing about the mysteries of godliness, that word was associated with being initiated or being an initiated one and then closing their eyes or closing their mouth. Now, you can just let that percolate in your mind for a bit. But that idea is that, that there's mysteries and that some people don't have access to those. The ordinances of the priesthood, they unlock those. That's kind of fun. And then another thing I want to mention is where Moses is taken out of their midst, and that's verse 25. And the Book of Mormon talks about this, that Moses was taken out. If you go to Alma 45... It talks about Alma departing out of the land of Zarahemla, and then it talks about, as to his death or burial, we know not of. Behold, this we know, he, meaning Alma, was a righteous man, and the saying went abroad in the church, that he was taken up by the Spirit, or buried by the hand of the Lord, even as Moses. Now, the Bible doesn't say that. The Bible talks about the death of Moses, but if you read the text carefully, it says things like, well, we don't know where his sepulcher is. Now, Moses, he's a big deal in the Bible. How would you not know where he's buried? And so in the Jewish tradition, there is a lot of traditional sayings that perhaps Moses experienced a heavenly ascent and that the Bible was altered or changed. Now, one historian, his name is Josephus, and you may have heard of him before. Josephus talks about because of his extraordinary virtue, God took Moses to himself. And this ties into the tradition of the gospel writers who talk about Moses and Elijah coming with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. And from a Christian perspective, how is this possible? Because Moses supposedly died and there's no resurrection yet. And so a lot of the early Christians had this idea that like Elijah taken up in heaven, Moses must have experienced this. Another text called The Assumption of Moses talks about the idea of him dying was just reprehensible, that God would have to take him to him. Now, like I said, none of this stuff is canonized in the Bible, but the Book of Mormon opens the door because we have Alma 45. So we have, as Latter-day Saints, in our canonized text, the fact that Moses didn't die. And there's all this stuff swirling around from like the third century BC to a couple hundred years after Jesus of all these people talking about it, but it's not in the Bible. And so once again, Joseph Smith sits in this tradition where he's telling us things that aren't in the Bible. But I think the big picture is that Moses kind of represents this higher authority and because they reject it you get verse 26. Now let's pick up on that theme because we're doing the same thing that they did. Moses was offering them the keys to the face of God, the rest of God. And Moses was trying to sanctify them, but they rejected that. Now notice what the Lord does just a few verses later. Let's go forward to Doctrine and Covenants 84, starting in verse 54, and see if you can see the same connection. Your minds in times past have been darkened because of unbelief and because you have treated lightly the things that you have received. Just as the same mistake, Moses was offering them some wonderful things and they treated it lightly. And so the Lord took Moses out of his presence. So what's the thing in our day that we have treated lightly? Verse 55, which vanity and unbelief have brought the whole church under condemnation, and this condemnation resteth upon the children of Zion even all, and they shall remain under this condemnation. And I wonder if that continues to 2021. I wonder if the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is still under condemnation because we haven't repented and we haven't 
stopped treating something lightly. Now notice in verse 57, what is the thing that we've treated lightly? We will remain under condemnation until they repent and remember the new covenant, even the Book of Mormon, and the former commandments, meaning Bible, which I have given them. In other words, can we add to the list of how to claim the blessings of God the study of the Scriptures? And if we treat lightly the Book of Mormon— We miss out on the joy of God. God has given us a Book of Mormon, and we're treating it lightly. Now, notice the test of the Book of Mormon is given at the end of verse 57. To remember the Book of Mormon, both to say and to do. I think we need to say more. We need to testify of We need to proclaim. We need to teach. More and more of our sacrament meeting talks need to be based on the Book of Mormon, our conversations, our family home evening, our lessons. But then the other part is we need to do what the Book of Mormon teaches. We will remember the covenant when we say more and do more. We should live as the Book of Mormon teaches. We should be modern-day stripling warriors. We should be Alma the Youngers and Zeezrom's even. We should be what the Book of Mormon teaches. As soon as we say and do more, we will lift the condemnation and we will claim the blessings that should be ours. So one more thing about Moses. So Book of Mormon is a type of what they did to Moses. But the whole point that we kind of got onto the subject of Moses is that we're going to build this temple. And in this temple, the sons of Moses and the sons of Aaron are going to offer an offering. Let me go back to section 13. When the Aaronic priesthood was restored, the Lord said, John the Baptist said that this priesthood would never be taken again from the earth. And in Oliver Cowdery's account of that, the angel says the reason it was restored was that the sons of Levi may offer this offering. So section 13, at the restoration of the Aaronic priesthood, we are told that the sons of Levi are going to offer an offering in righteousness. Now in section 84, we clarify that. It's not just the sons of Levi, because at the time of section 13, the Melchizedek priesthood had not been restored. And maybe if we had the full account of the restoration of the Melchizedek priesthood, it would have added the sons of Moses to that list, but we don't know what was said when Peter, James, and John restored the Melchizedek priesthood. But what we do have is in section 84, verse 31... Therefore, as I said concerning the sons of Moses, for the sons of Moses and also the sons of Aaron shall offer an acceptable offering and sacrifice in the house of the Lord. So now we add to the fact that not only will the sons of Aaron do it, but the sons of Moses will do it. Joseph's going to add in the next scripture where we're going to go in just a minute, the whole church. So it's not just a priesthood holder thing. It's the whole church. So we've got sons of Moses, sons of Aaron, and the whole church are going to offer an acceptable offering. Now notice where the offering will occur. In the house of the Lord. And I don't want to be technical, but it sure sounds like it's not in front of at the altar of sacrifice It's inside the temple. It's what we currently do in our temples. 
the church is going to offer God an offering in the temple. Now, we're going to get to section 128, but let's just turn there now. This is something that we can't emphasize too much. What is Joseph Smith's conclusion then that he writes in scriptures about this offering? So section 128 is kind of the introduction of the work for the dead. He starts in verse 24 that the, the Lord, the day of the Lord is at hand and who can, who can abide his coming? He is like fi- refiner's fire and fuller soap. He will refine the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver that they may offer unto the Lord an offering in righteousness. Now, he's really there just quoting the Old Testament. And now Joseph Smith's conclusion, therefore, let us therefore, as a church and as a people and as Latter-day Saints. So this is not just a priesthood holder offering. As a church and as a people and as Latter-day Saints, let us offer unto the Lord an offering in righteousness. And then Joseph Smith says, let us present in his holy temple when it is finished a book containing the records of all our dead, which shall be worthy of all acceptation. We as a church are writing that book as quickly as we can. First, we put our own ordinances in that book when we accept the priesthood ordinances of the gospel. And I go into the temple and I receive an endowment and I'm washed and anointed and sealed. And then my name goes in the book. And then I'm going to do everything I can to help Latter-day Saints, living Latter-day Saints, get in the book. And then when I turned 19, I went to Mexico, and I tried to encourage everyone in Mexico that I could to get their name in the book. And we work really hard to do missionary work, to get everyone's name in the book. And if they die before their name gets into the book, then we're going to do temple work, and we're going to record their names in the book. And we are trying to save all of Heavenly Father's children. And someday, when we have invited every single one of his children to put their name in that book, whether they were living or dead, we will offer that book to the Lord. And that's why we have received the priesthood, is so that we can save Heavenly Father's family and seal them so that they receive the blessings of eternity. So included in that book is proclaim the gospel, perfect the saints, redeem the dead. We are trying to save everyone and get their names in the book. I really think that ties in once again to section 84, verse 48. It's for the sake of the whole world. Yes. And the end of verse 50, to come unto me. God wants them to come unto me. And to verse 52, be acquainted with my voice. The idea is that it's our father calling us home, saying, come home. And along those lines, our father says back in section 84, verse 76, I say unto all those to whom the kingdom has been given, from you it must be preached unto them. So the plea, those of you who have the restoration, send it to everyone else. It reminds me of this wonderful story Boyd K. Packer told often. I personally heard him tell it three times in three different settings. It had a tremendous effect on him. He said, whenever I'm in South America, and that seems to be very often, I'm always looking for someone. I saw him first 14 years ago 
Brother Tuttle and I were in Cusco at a meeting of a branch. The meeting was held in a little room, and a door opened out onto the street. At Cusco, at an elevation of 13,000 feet, it is bitterly cold at night. The room was packed, and the door was open a little to let in some air. Brother Tuttle was speaking. Against the wall was a little sacrament table. As Brother Tuttle was speaking, I saw a little boy, perhaps six years old, come in the back door, perhaps for the warmth. He had on a ragged shirt, and that was all. His little feet were so callous that it was hard to tell that he had toes that were separated from one another. Then he saw the sacrament table and the bread. He was inching along the wall and was almost to the sacrament table when a woman sitting in about the third row saw him from the corner of her eye. Without saying a word, but with just a look and a shake of her head, she conveyed the message, You get out of here. You don't belong here. That little fellow turned and ran out into the night. Before Brother Tuttle had finished, the little boy appeared again at the door, and again, I suppose driven by the same hunger, he edged along the wall. He was almost to the place where that woman would see him again. He was studying us very carefully. I held out my arms to him, and he came willingly. I picked him up and held him, and then to teach our Lamanite members in Cusco a lesson, I sat him in the chair that had been reserved for Brother Tuttle. When the meeting closed, the little boy darted out into the night before I could talk to him or do anything for him. So every time I'm in South America, I'm looking for him. He's old enough now, I'm sure, to be married. When I am in a missionary meeting, I look for him and wonder, could it be? Could this elder be that boy, or could that one? I watch for him in the marketplace as we travel. I look for him in the streets. Some will say that it's a futile search, that I will never find him. But in this church, we will find him if we have to sift through every soul in South America. Some will say, perhaps he has died. You'll never find him. To them we say, we will find him. We will gather the names of every soul who has ever lived and bring them to the temple. Perhaps his son will bring his name. We will find him. Others will say, perhaps no record was ever kept. In that case, we will depend on revelation. We are looking for him with all the resources we can find. We send tens of missionaries, hundreds of missionaries, and thousands of missionaries to find him. You must look for him. That's kind of the spirit of the book. Heavenly Father is saying, those of you who have the truth, go share the truth with others so that we can get their names in the book. Get your name in it. Get your children's name in it. Get your ancestors' names in it. Get the neighbors' names in it. Get your ward members. If you teach primary, make sure the primary kids you teach get their name in that book so that when Jesus comes, we can offer unto him an offering in righteousness and present to him the book that contains the record of the whole family, the whole earth, everyone that was willing to put their name in the book. Bryce, I really like that. Go and bring them home. I want to talk about something that's very difficult. I sometimes wish every section when it came to prophetic literature was like section 87, where Joseph just says, oh, by the way, there's going to be a civil war, and it's going to start in South Carolina, and then we're going to cover section 87 uh, next time. But section 84 ends with a really interesting prophecy that doesn't happen, or at least it hasn't happened yet. And so I want to just read the verses in the text, and then what I want to do is present everyone with a few different ways to interpret this. 
I will also say that every time I come up with a possible interpretation, I also see the weaknesses. I, I don't do this to be negative, but when I've taught college students and we've come to sections like this in the scriptures, they ask me, Brother Day, what do you do with this? And so I've pondered these things. I've tried to work through them and wrestled with the text. And let me give you another because. This is something we all have to wrestle with. I can't tell you how many people who have shared with me the fact that something in their patriarchal blessing has not been fulfilled the way they expected it to be fulfilled, or a prayer, or an inspiration came, or a thought, or I was inspired to have another girl, and we never had another girl, or whatever. And and we all have to wrestle with these types of things. And so this is more than just did Joseph Smith you know, give a prophecy that didn't come true and that proves he's not a prophet? These are things we all have to wrestle with because we get inspiration from God. We get patriarchal promises that don't get fulfilled the way we expect them to be fulfilled, and we have to wrestle with these types of things. Absolutely. So if you go to section 84, verse 114, this is what we read. Let the bishop, and that's going to be Newell K. Whitney, go to the city of New York and also to the city of Albany and also to the city of Boston and warn the people of those cities with the sound of the gospel, with a loud voice of the desolation and utter abolishment which await them if they do reject these things. For if they do reject these things, the hour of their judgment is nigh, and their house shall be left unto them desolate. And then later, if you skip down to verse 117, we read this, reproving the world in righteousness of all their unrighteous and ungodly deeds, setting forth clearly and understandingly the desolation of abomination in the last days. For with you, saith the Lord Almighty, I will rend their kingdoms. I will not only shake the earth, but the starry heavens shall tremble. For I, the Lord, have put forth my hand to exert the powers of heaven. You cannot see it now, yet a little while, and ye shall see it, and know that I am, and that I will come and reign with my people. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. Amen. So that ends with this prophecy of devastation on three specific cities, New York, Albany, and Boston. Now, Wilfred Woodruff, on several occasions, is going to get even more specific, where he says essentially that New York will be destroyed by an earthquake, Albany will be destroyed by fire, and a tidal wave is going to destroy Boston. It's in his journal, and, and we give you links where you can read where he's talked about this. Wilfred Woodruff was of the opinion that this was going to happen, and soon. Now, this revelation was given in December of 1832, and... These destructions have not happened to these cities. Now, what do we do with this? One of the things that we need to remember is that Joseph Smith was having visions where he saw destruction. He knew that it was coming. He knew that it was imminent. And we're going to talk about that when we get to section 87. And when he's in Missouri and he's in prison, he even makes specific comments about the land that he's in where he says, you're not going to see any of these houses here. They're going to be destroyed. And those prophecies came true. And so I'm going to give you a couple different ways to look at this, but I certainly am going to begin and end with one of my favorite statements. And it's, I don't know. I don't have the answer, but I want to make sure that we read this in, in its setting 
And then I also want to give Joseph Smith a pass because I wasn't walking in his shoes. I don't know what he saw. I think to me, this is the way that I'm going to to take it today is that this is a vision or an apocalyptic vision that wasn't necessarily explained to Joseph in great detail. Um, perhaps these cities that he saw were in a vision that he saw in a state of destruction. And by his interpretation, as he saw this, he saw this happening soon when certainly that wasn't the case. It didn't happen. For me, the, the lens that I read this through is Joseph's a seer and he sees destruction. And maybe, I'm just saying maybe, maybe he's filling in the gaps based on his life experience because I see the same kind of thing happening in Ezekiel and Isaiah. We know, for example, of visionaries who see things and they don't know necessarily how to interpret them. Probably my favorite example of this, because it's so easy and most of our Latter-day Saint audiences have read this, is the vision that Nephi has. Nephi has this amazing panoramic vision. He sees destructions. He sees all kinds of things, but he doesn't necessarily know how to contextualize them. And so he has a guide. And he's able to ask questions and get answers back and forth. And we we saw some of that stuff happening in section 77, where Joseph is reading the book of Revelation that John had, his experience, and Joseph pauses the Lord and says, Lord, can you explain this to me? I don't understand this. And so I'm totally in the space of prophets being people that are having visions, but they don't always know how to contextualize them because they're not God. That's why they have to have things revealed to them. Now, on a personal note, I've had experiences where I've had dreams. I'm not going to call them visions, but I've had dreams that I didn't know what to do with them. And yet in my life, years later after that dream, I will see that dream fulfilled in a way that I didn't expect. And I certainly wasn't talking about it. I'm not a prophet and I'm not like writing this down and telling the world about it, but I would write it to myself. I would have a dream and I would record what I saw. And then years later, I would see how it happened. And it was very interesting to me. So what I'm trying to say in my own way is that Joseph can be a seer, but not all knowing that he sees something. And by the way, his heart had this close affinity to these people, you see, because historically he actually goes to these places. He goes there with Newell K. Whitney and he writes this beautiful letter to his wife and we link it in the show notes and you can read the the letter and you can feel his tenderness where he says and speaks of so many people in darkness. His heart aches for these people. He, he talks about the gross darkness that covers the people and how he beholds it. And he goes to his room and he tries to meditate to calm his mind down because he sees how much our heavenly parents love these people. And it may be that the prophecy was intended to lend Joseph to go there. And going there fills Joseph Smith's heart with a love for the people, which manifests himself in a desire to preach and to teach and to save. So it's hard for me to say that the prophecy wasn't fulfilled because the destruction didn't happen. Um, there's just so much to this. There's so many layers to this. And I just love reading Joseph's pleadings. You could feel his heart and his love for the people of these these areas in these specific cities. So maybe that was the fulfillment of the prophecy. Maybe that was enough. Mike and I have talked a lot in the past that with God, sometimes it's not product, but process. 
And sometimes the fulfillment wasn't just, well, the prophecy came true as much as it's your getting the prophecy led to actions that really needed to happen or drew you closer to people or to Heavenly Father. And that process was more valuable than the product. He certainly loved them. I struggle sometimes with what to do with this because you add Wilfer Woodruff's testimony and even later in 1864 where he says, hey, this is happening. And so, but I don't know. And I don't know Wilfer Woodruff's mind. Or even the conversations that Joseph had with Wilfred that led him to write that. Yeah, like you know, I don't what know. What was said and what was done so that Wilfred did interpret it that way. Was that a misinterpretation from Wilfred Woodruff? Was that exactly what was said? Did he misunderstand? We just don't have that information. We just don't know. Uh, By the way, know this, that Isaiah and Ezekiel are really big deals in the Old Testament, and both of them give prophecies that historically were not fulfilled in the manner by which they spake them. Now, Isaiah, there's a lot of wiggle room with the language and the things that he says. But if you go to the 19th chapter of Isaiah, Isaiah is going to talk about the destruction of Egypt and even the desiccation or the drying up of the Nile River. And I'm not going to do too much there because we'll do it when we get to Isaiah. But he's also going to talk about the destruction of a city called Tyre. Uh, It's a little bit easier for me to give Isaiah a pass due to some of the language issues, but Ezekiel is pretty much a slam dunk. Now, let me just say this, uh, people that write against the Bible, people that are actively trying to tear down the Bible, Ezekiel's passage in the 26th chapter of the destruction of the port city of Tyre is kind of a billboard to an atheist. I mean, they're going to go right, any atheist who knows his stuff is going to go right there. And I just tip my hat and say, you're right. It was not fulfilled the way that it was stated. If you go to the 26th chapter of Ezekiel, this is not a podcast on Ezekiel, but just know that he prophesies that the king of Babylon, and he names him by name, Nebuchadnezzar, is going to go in and wipe out Tyre, that it won't be inhabited. It's going to be this rock in the middle of the water with no people that you can't even, you know, you lay your fish nets out to dry them on, and that's it. Now, historically, Tyre was, I like to call the Amazon.com of the ancient world, meaning that it was an empire where if I brought my widgets to Tyre, they were safe because nobody could get in there. It was out there in the waters about a half mile away from land, and you couldn't get to it except for by sea, and it was surrounded with walls, and so nobody could take it. And so Ezekiel basically says, oh, Nebuchadnezzar, you're going to do this, you're going to take it. And the king of Babylon actually tries for 13 years. And we give you some of the sources, Josephus writes about this and others, that he tries super hard and he can't get in. And essentially the 26th chapter of Ezekiel doesn't happen. And then a few years later, Ezekiel 29. And in that passage, the Lord speaks through Ezekiel and says, hey, we know it didn't happen. And because of that, the spoil of Egypt shall be the king of Babylon. The point of this is that I acknowledge that that prediction didn't happen. And yet we have some kind of a partial fulfillment. Now, here's where I kind of have some wiggle room here. The city of Tyre doesn't succumb to the king of Babylon in his attack, but they do become a vassal state and they do pay tribute to Babylon Uh, And so some people would say, well, it was partially fulfilled, but not the way 26 chapter says it was. But then later, hundreds of years after Ezekiel's gone, Alexander the Great's coming through and he sees it and he says, we're going in. 
And he first tries to use diplomacy and that doesn't work. And so he builds a causeway. They take a bunch of buckets of sand and they build a causeway. And we actually show you this in the show notes. You can see from an aerial view, we have this 1934 picture taken from an airplane where you can see the causeway that Alexander built. And he went in there and he wrecked Tyre. And so some people say, well, Ezekiel's prophecy wasn't fulfilled the way he said it would be, but it was fulfilled later. And so I guess what I'm trying to do is just wrestle with what I call the messiness of Scripture. And be very careful when you create an expectation on how God's going to fulfill a prophecy. See, we do that with our patriarchal blessings. We do that with inspiration. We create an expectation. Oh, the Lord said, because the Lord said Tyre's going to be destroyed. Yeah. And then we have a tendency to, well, that means this time period and by this people, and this is what's going to happen. And when that doesn't happen, but it happens some other way, the Lord's prophecy did come true, just not the way we expected. And we need to be careful not to pinpoint the Lord's prophecies on how we expect them to be fulfilled. Imagine you're Ezekiel, you are having a vision and you see Tyre destroyed. And the big gorilla on the block that was kind of wrecking everybody in Ezekiel's day was Babylon. So I see it totally normal that the prophet Ezekiel is just assuming that this vision that he has is the fulfillment of the greatest power that he knew, which was Babylon. He doesn't know anything about you know King Philip and Alexander that are going to come over 200 years later. And so he sees this vision and maybe he filled in the blank spot of who was attacking it based on his life experience. In other words, he can be a prophet and he can be a person. Now, enemies to faith are just going to say, Mike, man, you are really stretching this to make this fit. And if that's the accusation, I will accept it. But because of my actual life experience, I've had spiritual experiences. I know by the spirit certain things that I can't explain rationally. And sometimes scripture is in that space of we're in history, but we're also talking about spiritual things. And sometimes it's messy. That's really, I cite uh, Chris Utt a lot. He's not LDS, but he's wrestling with these ideas. And he says that we need to view this looking for God's purposes rather than a rigid expectation of exact historical expectation. And then he says, this kind of flexibility gives room for other interpretations of of other difficult passages. And I throw difficult passages at you, like the one in Ezekiel, the one in Isaiah 19, and frankly, section 84 of the Doctrine and Covenants. And then he says this, it may not be necessary or possible to point out the exact and complete fulfillment of each and every prophecy. If God was content in this case with only a partial fulfillment of Ezekiel's prophecy, it is conceivable that this could be true in other cases as well. Now, that's a non-Latter-day Saint biblical scholar wrestling with the text, and I just say, yep, I agree with that because I think it's so important. Um, Another one that may fit as well is in the 19th chapter of Isaiah. and We we referenced it earlier, but I'm going to read the passage. It's verse 5. Isaiah has this burden or this masa. He's, He's got this message to Egypt. And he says, the water shall fail from the sea and the river shall be wasted and dried up. Reading this passage through an apocalyptic lens, seeing the images that are laid out in Isaiah 19, if you read that chapter and you take off your literalist biblical interpretive lens and you put on your symbolic glasses, Isaiah 19 is pretty cool because the drying up of the Nile river could be a symbol for the lack of fertility 
that the world has to offer. In other words, this water of life, that everything that represented life and coming into God, that is dried up as you follow worldliness. And so if you read Isaiah 19 with that lens, I think that what happens is, to me at least, Isaiah 19 really opens up a lot of possibilities. Now, that being said, I have to be straight up. The people that lived in the 1830s did not view the end of Section 84 with the symbolic glasses I'm talking about. I have the the benefit of sitting here in 2021, and I've had all the history behind me. And from my reading of history, they're looking at this as literal. And soon. Yeah, like it's coming. Because think about this. If it was going to happen in 300 years, and a lot of commentators say things like, oh, this is going to happen before the millennium. Well, if that's the case, why are we sending Newell K. Whitney to warn them? If their great-grandchildren aren't even going to be alive when these destructive things happen, why send Newell K. Whitney? And so for me, I'm going to say this again, like how I started. For me, the, the lens that I read this through is Joseph's a seer, and he sees destruction. Maybe he's filling in the gaps based on his life experience, because I see the same kind of thing happening in Ezekiel and Isaiah. I don't know. Now, as you wrestle with the I don't knows, and the this doesn't connect with that, and this doesn't meet my expectation, let me remind you of some wonderful words written by C.S. Lewis. He said, if our religion is something objective, then we must never avert our eyes from those elements in it which seem puzzling or repellent. For it will be precisely the puzzling or the repellent which conceals what we do not yet know and need to know. The truth which you do not know and which you need must in the very nature of things be hidden precisely in the doctrine you least like and least understand. It is just the same here as it is in with science. The phenomenon which is troublesome, which doesn't fit in with the current scientific theories, is the phenomenon which compels reconsideration and thus leads to new knowledge. Science progresses because scientists, instead of running away from such troublesome phenomena or hushing them up, are constantly seeking them out. In the same way, there will be progress in Christian knowledge only as long as we accept the challenge of the difficult or repellent doctrine. So ask the questions, right? And don't be afraid of them. There's great, there's great value in the struggle. Joseph prophesied that three cities would be destroyed and they weren't destroyed, or they haven't been destroyed. So what does that mean? And I'm not rooting for them to get destroyed. I mean, don't we have temples there? I mean, come on. Definitely not. But we're also simply saying we believe with everything we are that Joseph was in fact a seer and that his authority was legitimate. And so how does all this fit? We don't know, but we're not afraid to talk about it and ask questions. And it doesn't necessarily diminish the shine on him because we are witnesses that Joseph was in fact a seer. There's no way Joseph could have done all that he did without being inspired by God. Now, what happened at the end of section 84? We don't know. And I think it's okay that we don't know. Yeah. Excellent. I would just add, I wouldn't lead with those verses, but I think if I was a teacher, I need to be aware of them. Because it may come up. People are going to ask questions and let's not be afraid to answer their questions. 
But we're going to end our podcast with kind of a fun little prophecy here. In this whole section on missionary work, on let's gather the Israel, let's bring the people in, and all the blessings I'm going to offer the missionaries, the Lord says, look, the Almighty is going to succeed. Starting in verse 96 of section 84, he says, I, the Almighty, have laid my hands upon the nations to scourge them from their wickedness, and plague shall go forth, and they shall not be taken from the earth until I have completed my work, which shall be cut short in righteousness. I will complete my work, says the Lord. And this is going to go forward, verse 98, until all shall know me who remain even from the least unto the greatest and shall be filled with the knowledge of the Lord and shall see eye to eye and shall lift up their voice and with the voice together sing this new song. If you want to be with Christ in the millennium, you need to be able to sing the new song. Now, there's a pattern here. That goes back to the days of Egypt. When the Israelites were leaving Egypt, they sang a song. They sang the song of Moses. It's a song of praise and appreciation. And there's some interesting prophecies in the book of Revelation, which has so much to do with our day. John saw several groups singing a new song. In Revelation chapter 5, which is kind of a glimpse into the celestial kingdom, John is allowed to come up into the celestial kingdom, and he sees a group of people in verse 9. They sung a new song. And then in Revelation 14, he sees a group of saved saints in Zion. Now, verse 3 of Revelation 14, they sung, as it were, a new song before the throne and before the four beasts and the elders, and no man could learn the song but the 144,000 which were redeemed from the earth. Now, that's a fascinating thought, where the words are printed in section 84. No man could learn that song but the redeemed of the earth. So with the words being printed in section 84, what then is it that we have to learn? We have to learn, I would suggest, we have to learn the tune of the new song, because the words are printed there in section 84. So how do we learn the two? In the spirit of Revelation 14, that no man could learn the song except the redeemed. Can I show you a group of people, or at least one person, learning the song? First of all, let's go to the Book of Mormon, Alma chapter 5, verse 26, I believe has the name of the song. I would suggest that the name of the new song He says, if you've ever felt to sing the song of redeeming love, can you feel so now? So you may know the words in your head, but until you can feel to sing the song of redeeming love, you won't sing it. So how do we learn the song of redeeming love. And now we have one of the great Book of Mormon stories. Watch this man learn the song. Turn with me to Alma chapter 36, as Alma describes to his son Helaman how he learned the song. 
He describes his wickedness, his rebellion against God, his fighting against God. And because he fought against God, an angel appeared, verse 12, he was racked with eternal torment. He was harrowed up to the greatest degree and racked with all his sins. That's the coming judgment if we don't repent. That's the song we will sing if you don't turn to the Savior. It's the song of eternal torment. It's being harrowed up to the greatest degree. It's lamenting and mourning and gnashing your teeth. Verse 13, he was tormented with the pains of hell. Now notice verse 14. I think this is so significant. The thought of coming into the presence of my God did rack my soul with inexpressible horror. The thought of facing God filled him with horror. Verse 15, he'd rather become extinct. I don't want to face God. But now verse 17, what happens? I remember to have heard my father prophesy unto the people concerning the coming of one Jesus Christ, a son of God to atone for the sins of the world. And as my mind caught hold upon this, I cried within my heart, O Jesus, thou son of God, have mercy on me. And now in verse 19, he describes redemption. He describes what it's like when you are saved by Jesus. Now, do you remember verse 14? The thought of facing God filled his soul with inexpressible horror. Now look at verse 22. Alma 36, 22 is a complete change. He sees God. And instead of inexpressible horror, He sees a numberless concourses of angels in the attitude of singing and praising their God. And notice what it says, my soul did long to be there. He learned the song. He learned the song of redeeming love when Jesus redeemed him. When he felt that love of the Savior, when he was touched by the atonement, just like when the burden of slavery in Egypt was conquered, they sang praises. When the burden of sin is conquered and we come out of sin, we sing praises to God. We know the song of redeeming love. If you have ever been redeemed by the Savior, you know what that feels like. That's the new song. And now we add the words as found in section 84. Let me just paint a picture as to how that's going to play out. Turn with me to Doctrine and Covenants, section 128, a beautiful description of the singing of the new song. So I'm going to have Mike read it. We're going to read Doctrine and Covenants 128, 22, and 23, and watch how the song is going to be sung someday. The song of redeeming love. Guess who's going to start the singing? Mike, read 22. Brethren, shall we not go on in so great a cause? Go forward and not backward. Courage, brethren, and on, on to the victory. Let your hearts rejoice and be exceedingly glad. Here we go. Ready? Now the song's going to start with? Let the earth break forth into singing. That's where it starts. This planet will start the singing because this planet knows the song of redeeming love. She knows her Redeemer and has been longing to be redeemed. The earth 
starts it. And then who comes in? The dead. Let the dead speak forth anthems of eternal praise to King Emmanuel, who hath ordained before the world was that which would enable us to redeem them out of their prison, for the prisoners shall go free. All the billions of spirits trapped in the spirit world will sing the song of redeeming love. Now, this is going to be a marvelous little thing to hear the earth and the dead singing. Now, watch the crescendo as it builds up. Verse 23, Mike. Let the mountains shout for joy, and all ye valleys cry aloud, and all ye seas and dry lands tell the wonders of your eternal king. So the mountains are singing, and the valleys, and the seas, and the dry land, and they're joined by? And ye rivers, and brooks, and rills flow down with gladness. Let the woods and all the trees of the field praise the Lord. And ye solid rocks weep for joy. So now we've got all of earth singing, all of the dead singing, and now what joins in? Let the sun, moon, and the morning stars sing together. So now we've got the entire universe singing the song of redeeming love, the praises to the king. The earth, the sun, the moon, the stars, and finally who joins in at the very end? B'nai Elohim, all the sons of God. Let all the sons of God shout for joy. And let the eternal creations declare his name forever and ever. And again, I say, how glorious is the voice we hear from heaven, proclaiming in our ears glory and salvation and honor and immortality and eternal life, kingdoms, principalities, and powers. That's the song we will sing. No matter where we are right now in the history of the church, no matter how discouraging it may seem that the progress of the church is slowed, No matter where we are, we will sing the new song. The earth, the sun, the moon, the stars, the dead, and all the sons of God who know the tune will sing the song of redeeming love. May you see a loving God who is calling all of us home, not just the members of the church, but everyone on this planet, everyone that's dead. He's calling us home. Let's fill the book so that when he comes, we have fulfilled our purposes, we have saved his children. And just can you imagine the chorus of all those saved people and the earth and the universe singing praises to God? I look forward to that moment. May you see that and feel that as you study section 84. We're grateful for all of you, and we will see you next week. Next time we will do section 85 through 87. Talking Scripture is not an official production of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The opinions expressed in this podcast are Mike and Bryce's opinions only. We refer you to official church sources and the church website to clarify any doctrinal questions.